Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash slyflourish and sign up. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, a dedicated Discord channel, previews of future work, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. The link to join my Patreon is in the show notes below. We have a lot to talk about today. There's been a lot of big news in the week. Look at this, look at this list. Granted, it's like a sub list, but boy, a lot of stuff. So we're going to try to move, we're going to try to move quickly today to get through all this stuff because some of it is pretty big news. First, I always like to start with a update on how things are going with the Lazy DMs Companion, my Kickstarter that I ran last October. And it's been going very well. We've been getting a lot of art from a lot of different places. And I thought I'd show off some of the art. So I'm going to show this off in an update on the Kickstarter, probably later in December. I'm going to post a new update to the, I'm going to post a new update to the Kickstarter and tell everybody about it. 93% of the backers have filled out their backer kit survey. So the 7% of you who haven't, please fill out your backer kit survey. If you backed it and you don't know what I'm talking about, please send me a message through Kickstarter with the email address to which you would like to receive your backer kit survey so we can make sure to get you your stuff because I have no way to give you your stuff if you don't fill out the backer kit survey. So please do that. Art, check this stuff out. So I've been getting art from a number of different artists that have that have been doing things here. Here are some examples of the maps. These are the two layer maps that we're going to have in the book. We're going to have one is a natural cavern map and one is a worked stone map. The idea behind these is that they're multi-purpose. You can use these maps for lots of different things. I wanted to have some cool maps that you could use to, to do multiple things. And that's what we've got here. We are also going to have both an, an inn and tavern map. That's a three level inn and tavern map. These are two of the three levels. This is the upper floor below. And this is the lower, the lower floor, the lower floor, or this is the cellars because you always have creepy cellars underneath your inn and tavern. We're also going to be doing a, we're also going to be doing a mansion map, a manor, so that you can do heists. These are the sample point crawl, point crawl maps that we're going to have in the book. This is the underground point crawl map. This is just a sample and these big numbers are, are on here just so the artist and I can talk back and forth about, about how, we're, how we're going about it. But you can see how like the point crawl idea works here. So these are obviously very kind of highly stylized example of what a point crawl map looks like. This is the overland point crawl map. So this is underground and there's some secret grand root stuff in here. And this is the overland point crawl map. We were talking all the all the pink lines are to kind of show what the lines are between the point crawls. And then some art from Matt Morrow. So these are some of the internal pieces of art that haven't yet made it into the companion. This is the one for relics. This is one for kind of fantastic locations. This is one for the gothic horror one. And then the final piece of art for kind of underground, cool underground places. I love this. Hey, hey, look, a giant sarcophagus in an old tomb. Huh. How about that? So, yeah, so I think this is really, the art is going very well. Everything's really, everything that I'm getting is outstanding and I can't wait to have it in the book. We will probably have it all in the book by the end of January. So that right now we're shooting to have all of the end of, at the end of January, all of the art will go into the book and the new PDF will go out. And at that point, that will be the final PDF of the Lazy DMs Companion, which goes out to pretty much all backers. The only backers who won't get it are the people that did like a $2 pledge. But I think everybody who backed any of the pledges, any of the pledges of like, I think it was $10 and above, will get the PDF of it. So that's really Really awesome. 10,000 people are going to get a copy of that, which is really crazy and cool. Very excited for that. So let's see here. Whoops. I'm in the wrong place. I screwed up. So that is the art and maps for the companion. Awesome stuff. So yes, this past week, Wizards of the Coast released a new set of errata for many of the books 
many of the D&D, many of the D&D books. Uh, this is all available. This will all be in the show notes. I'll, I'll paste the link. And there are a lot of different things that occurred in here. And in a few cases, various parts of the internet completely lost their minds over this, over this errata. And in lots of cases, there's like little tiny things that they fixed. There was no major mechanical things, I don't think. That, that, that got changed. Like I didn't really see any, I got this like little surge of adrenaline and then immediately followed by like sadness of defeat. When I saw that Heroes Feast was one of the things that was errated and all they did was say, and it's not 12 people, it's like 12 people, including you. And I was like, how about, how about the poison? How about instead of poison immunity, it does poison resistance? No. So that was not one of the things that changed. That's fine. But probably one of the areas that got the most attention was in the errata for Volo's Guide to Monsters. And in here, there was a fair bit of change. In fact, many areas where they simply said, this section has now been cut, right? So role-playing a mind flayer, the paragraph before the tables has been replaced with the following, right? And they cut out a paragraph. Orcs, the sidebar has been removed. Role-playing an orc, the two paragraphs. So they removed a lot of stuff. And this is kind of where... You know, if you read, it's very interesting too. If you like go on Twitter, you get one point of view. If you get on Reddit, you get a different point of view. Or at least those are the one, the voices that tend to be, you know, kind of brought up the loudest. And one of the things they did on Reddit was kind of show what material got pulled, right? And so I stuck it into a Notion notebook, so I had it. But you can find the Reddit post where they, it shows the stuff that got pulled. And when I read it, I go, yeah, I can tell why you wouldn't want to have that in a future printing of a book, right? The ritual that produced the first Yuanti required that human subjects to butcher and eat their human slaves and prisoners. You know, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I can understand why you, you know, you can imagine if Wizards was doing a brand new book today, they probably wouldn't put that in there, right? The world has changed a lot in the past few years, right? And Wizards typically has not been very fast to change with it. So this is them starting to change with it, right? I get it. And, you know, with their cultural ingrained tenacity to bow before superior strength, orcs can be subjugated by a powerful charisma. You know, that doesn't read very well these days. It's also not true in Eberron, right? One of the major, one of the major campaign settings for D&D, &D, that's not, these things aren't true, right? They don't fit. So mind fairs are inhuman monsters that typically exist as part of a collective colony mind. I guess that's fine, right? They didn't really change much. Each has a brilliant mind, personality, and motivations. I, like that one, I'm like, I don't know why they changed it. You know, all right. Knolls are kind of an interesting one because I th I don't know if there's many D&D settings where no, I think Knolls and I don't know what Knolls are like in Eberron. Knolls are an interesting case in this whole discussion about whether or not you, we need more, we need more diversity in the different kinds of personalities and different kinds of drives and motivations. Knolls are different because of how they're formed, but they could be formed differently depending on the world you're picking. And like in Midgard, they are not formed the same way that they are in, in other ones, you know, uh, and then Beholders, right? So the problem is people saw this and they saw what was cut Many people saw what was cut and freaked out. And I'm like, but think of all, like they cut one paragraph of the Beholder. It's like 10 pages of stuff, right? I actually went and looked. I was like, what, what amount of text is actually removed? And it's like four to 8%. It's not like now we don't know how to play a Beholder. There was also an argument of like the, well, now how am I supposed to play Mind Flayers? And it's like, well, how did you play it before Volos was out? Right? Like Volos didn't come out when the Monster Manual came out and you still managed to play a Beholder okay. So like, I, I guess... I am of the opinion that sort of being really worried about this, I don't get it, right? I mean, I can, I can kind of understand, but the other one is like, guess what? You're, you know, I've, I've, I've got my copy of Volo's Guide right here. This is actually the special edition Volo's Guide, right? And I checked to see, and the text is still there. I was worried that Crawford had broken into my house in the middle of the night with a big Sharpie, but no, that didn't happen. 
right? So I've still got the text because I bought the book. So nobody is taking the text away, right? And I think what they're basically saying is in, in reprints of the books, that text won't be there. Okay, it's their book. They can do what they want, right? And that's fine, right? And in many cases, I agree with it. Like I can, you know, I read, I read the thing with you want to. I'm like, yeah, I can kind of get what you don't want to do that. Now, I think the funny thing is the, the, the monster manual is actually far worse. If you read like the descriptions for the orcs and the goblins in the monster manual, like those are, those are pretty problematic if you ask me. And I imagine when they do a new monster manual, you're not going to read the same way because it's also just boring, right? To say all orcs are brutish savages that live in caves and attack humans. Boring. All of them, everyone, every goblin is a black-hearted little thief, right? Who just gathers together and, no, Eberron, they're not. Eberron, they're, you know, they're the remnants of a mighty empire that existed thousands of years ago. So no, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, right? So I can get why they would change it. And they didn't change your book. If you have your book, you still your book, right? You still own it. And then the people buying the future, they're not going to get it. But I don't, like, it's not, take, it's it's 4%. Like, it's not very much. So, but but Reddit, like, lost their minds. Then one of the things, so so the reality is, right, you can read what text got pulled, and you think it's all of it. But then you go read what's left, and it's still most of it. Mindflayers are still totally evil. Beholders are still crazy orbs that are fighting death rays. It's not like every beholder is now a nice a nice guy, right? So it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. I will have a trick. If you, if your argument, so one of the arguments, one of the discussions has been pretty interesting on Twitter is that there hasn't been a good replacement for it sure what am i supposed to do when before all orcs were evil and it was pretty easy to just throw orcs in a battle and then you're fine you know but what can we do differently so i have a very easy trick for you right which is it doesn't have to be based on race anymore it could be based on who they follow so instead of orcs it's orcs of grumpsh right? Orcs of Grumsh are still dicks, right? Orcs of Grumsh will still attack your human caravans. Orcs of Grumsh will still raid villages and you still have to go deal with them because Grumsh is a dick and the followers of Grumsh are likewise dicks, right? Same thing with goblins. Goblins of Meglubiat are a bunch of dicks. But what about like orcs of Tempest, right? Well, the orcs of Tempest are still like, they're pretty brutish, but they have paladins, right? They might defend villages, right? They, you know, orcs of different groups will do different things, Right. And you could have orcs of, you know, sun orcs, right, that are that worship the sun and they're kind of interesting. Right. And people go, oh, look, the orcs are showing up. Oh, no, those are the merchant orcs. You know, they're a little heavy with their religion, but they're pretty great. So why not have some variants? Right. And the easy way is who do they follow? Who do they follow and, and how are they organized and have groups? I have drow in my frost mating game that are definitely villains right but it's not all drower villains it's the knight's kiss assassins from menzo baranzan they're you know they're bad they're bad people right they do bad things house zolaren from menzo baranzan they're they're bad people right is it all drow no it's not all drow but definitely if you're a drow from menzo baranzan likelihood is you're not great and if you're a drow from one of the houses of menzo baranzan you're not great but also if you're a drow from House Menzer Baranzen that happens to be hunting down people so that you can dissect them and take out the little Mind Flayer symbiote in their body. You're probably a bad person, right? You know, you are what you do, as Quato says in Total Recall, right? And so focus on what monsters do, not on them being monsters, right? Can you have friendly hill giants? Sure, there were friendly hill giants in Storm King's Thunder. Nobody freaked out, right? There's a hill giant that you can go and have a fun conversation with in Storm King's Thunder. And everyone's like, oh my God, you know, a good hill giant? That's the worst, right? Well, no, of course, we've had good monsters and this conversation has been going on for 50 years i think it's caves of chaos has an orphan not an orphanage has a daycare center for orcs 
right? And the first thing is like your adventurers burst in and here's a bunch of baby orcs. And you're like, what are we supposed to do with this, right? Are we? And you know, Gygax is like, let's see what they do with a bunch of baby orcs, which isn't the great, you know, the, the great way to operate, right, necessarily. But the idea that you've had variants in, in, in these various quote unquote monstrous races has existed for 50 years. Anyway, my point is, so if you're really bothered by this, on either side, if you read the description of orcs in the monster manual, right, and think, I hate that, all right? Or you say, like, I don't like that they took out that Yuanti came from human sacrifices and eating themselves. All right. You, Watsi doesn't get to determine your happiness with D&D in whatever direction you go. I get upset when I, you know, everybody's got their bugaboo, right? And I get more, you know, we all have sort of different things. And I look at dragon claw attacks and when they do 10 points of damage when they're CR 26, that bothers me, right? And we, we don't give, Watsi is not the government. Right. Watsi is not a non for profit. They are not a they are not fueled to drive a community. They are not a 5013C designed to bring a community of people together. Nor are they the federal government. Nor are they, you know, in your house telling you how to play your game. They're a company. Right. They they are a commercial company that does commercial stuff one way or the other. I don't I think they agree with the changes they're making. I don't think they're just doing it because it's like, oh, there's this loud group over here on Twitter. We're going to do what they say. I think they believe what they're doing. I think they're listening to the arguments. Right. Like I listen to the arguments and go, yeah, OK, it makes sense. And the world changes. Right. And so they do what they do. But they do things that we're going to like and they do things that we don't like. Right. And no matter who we are. And the more kind of power we give Watsi over D&D in our heads right? The more angry we're going to be. So what's the way to do this? Well, no one got upset about how Midgard treated Knowles, right? Why? Oh, that's Cobalt Press. It's different. Why? Right? Cobalt Press gets to do it there. You get to decide what you're going to do with your D&D. You get to decide which version of D&D you're going to play, right? You can play any version of D&D. You can go onto Amazon right now and buy core books for like six editions of D&D, of different ones that you can play. Not to mention the multitude of third-party RPGs that are basically built on D&D. You get to choose what you're going to do. You get to choose which books you're going to bring in. You don't like how Fizzbands treats dragons. That's okay. It's up to you, right? You don't like this, you know, it's okay. It's up to you. Don't let Watsi and their, de- and their decisions determine your individual happiness with D&D. You get to, you get to pick what you're happy with. That's, that's my rant in there. They're not the government. They're not a not-for-profit. So the other interesting question and the argument came up with, yes, but they're going to, they, they know Jeremy Crawford didn't come into your house, find your copy of Volo's Guide and take a Sharpie to it, right? No, that's not true. But they are going to change D&D Beyond, right? And you paid for D&D Beyond. That's your book on D&D Beyond. And they're going to go and they're going to alter the books on D&D Beyond, right? This breaks your trust with D&D Beyond. Good. Your trust with D&D Beyond needs to be broken because you don't own the books on D&D Beyond. And this is one way to find out, right? And in my opinion, it's a way to find out that isn't really that destructive because guess what's happening in a month? In a month, you're going to have 300 stat blocks that you may have paid for on D&D Beyond and they're going to change all of them, I'm pretty sure. So you're going to look at your War Priest today and you're going to look at your War Priest at the end of January and they're going to be two different stat blocks. And you may like the new War Priest stat block. I like the new War Priest stat block. But you may look at some of them and be like, I don't like how they changed this stat block, right? And that stat block is gone. They're going to change a lot of stuff, right? I don't know what's going to happen with the new version of D&D. We don't, none of us do. Are they even going to use D&D Beyond? I'm not sure, right? We don't know. The tighter we wound ourselves around D&D Beyond as the canonical version of D&D, the more we're disappointed we're going to be because some of that stuff changes. It's changed before. The other, other stuff has changed before. But there might be a rata that occur that you don't dig. 
And that errata is going to happen and change on D&D Beyond. So D&D Beyond is a wonderful, and I'm going to talk about some awesome D&D Beyond stuff that I found out today. I love D&D Beyond. It's great. It is not the canonical D&D. And there's a reason why I keep the physical books on hand. And again, it's because they can't change these, right? I have my new version of Volo's Guide. Hell, the price of this, this one's already crazy expensive. It's like $700. And it's probably going to go up, right? Not that I'm, you know, it ain't my 401k. It's the Sly Flourish 401k. What happens with the, the other good news with D&D Beyond is they change things. You don't have to buy it again, right? If they're going to change the stuff in Volos to the most updated version, you didn't have to buy a new version of Volos Guide to have the updated stuff, right? The errata happens automatically. Some cases that's good. Some cases that's not so good. And I don't know exactly what's going to happen when they put out Monsters of the Multiverse next month, but they are going to put it out and it's going to change things. And some of it you, you are probably going to like and some of it you're probably not going to like on the assumption that you're in a normal distribution. And I'm probably going to like a lot because I tend to like things. But you cannot trust that your version of D&D Beyond is going to be with you. A, be around forever. It's not, right? And B, that it's not going to change underneath your feet, right? It can. So what are you buying when you spend $20 or $30 on a book on D&D Beyond? You're buying a license to have that version online for some amount of time, but you don't own it, right? And this is one way to find out that you don't own it. And if you're really upset about Wizards of the Coast for changing errata, and therefore it is changing your Volo's Guide, and now your Volo's Guide, first of all, come on, like you were really sitting there reading the Yuanti information every three weeks, right? You weren't, you weren't there. So it can change. And I think that this is a good, hard lesson to show you that D&D Beyond isn't canonical D&D because it can change under your feet. Again, I agree with the changes they're making. I can understand why they're doing them. And in many cases, I think they are fine. Let's get right into the next big controversial piece, which is, hey, Kickstarter, what are you doing, man? Right? So Kickstarter announced this past week with like, <laughs> you know, a big blog post. We're, we're going to do exciting things with distributed backing and it's going to be great and we're going to do cool things to decentralize it and we're using blockchain and the only word that made any sense to anybody in that was the word blockchain right they said we're using the blockchain to do stuff and most people many people i don't know i'm not going to go with most many people the the word blockchain does not sit well with them because Blockchain is part of this whole crypto kind of new sort of distributed crypto thing. It got big with Bitcoin. And what many people have pointed out is particularly with Bitcoin, not so much with all blockchains, but certainly with Bitcoin, it takes tremendous amounts of energy in order to manage uh, Bitcoin into either mine Bitcoin, but also to manage the blockchain for Bitcoin. It, it's tied up with uh, these things called NFTs. Somebody remind me what NF NFT stands for, but it, NFT is sort of this kind of weird scammy way of tying a, a unique identifier to a piece of digital art to say that you own that one piece of digital art. Non-fungible token, it's called, right? And it's the idea of like, and I don't get it. Go, go, go hit Wikipedia, right? I'm not, I'm just going to force gut my way through the description anyway. But I can, I, you know, so there are a few sure things I can tell you. And one is that lots and lots of people really hate the idea that Kickstarter is going to the blockchain, right? Lots of people really hate it. Good friends of mine, creators in the industry are saying, I guess I'm not using Kickstarter anymore. A lot of people said, I'm not using, I'm either not going to back Kickstarter or I'm not going to launch any new projects on Kickstarter because of this move to blockchain and the feeling that it is highly, whatever weird ass stuff you're doing with it, the one thing we can be sure of is that it's going to be detrimental to the environment, right? Even if there's all these offsets and all this other stuff, you know, it's going to be detri detrimental to the environment, which is pr probably true, right? I don't know what Kickstarter's carbon footprint was before they did this. I seriously doubt it will be less 
after they do this. And one thing we do know about blockchain is that even when you do things like carbon offsets, it's still going to be pretty, it's still going to be pretty heavy. So I can tell you, it sounds like a really dumb idea, right? And so uh, to kind of skipping around in my various things here, I, I wrote them an, an email, you know, I, I sent it both to Kickstarter through the, the channel that they offered up to send an email. And I sent it to Kickstarter Union, which is so one interesting thing about Kickstarter is they have an employee union. Uh, that was also uh, a, a great big deal. About a year or two ago, they were starting to form a union. Two union organizers were fired from Kickstarter. A lot of people said, I guess we're done with Kickstarter. Then the union formed. They actually formed together and Kickstarter said, OK, we're going to we're going to accept the union. So they are now a unionized company. And I was very curious. Well, this is a really good example of how we can watch what happens because the union will also likely get involved. The union posted a note saying, we don't really know what we're going to do. We're going to watch, we're going to wait and see. And so that's telling, right? That means it's not just like a couple of big fat cats at the top of the chain who are making decisions because they read a copy of Ford Ma Forbes magazine while they were on their private jet flying across the country to talk to a virtual, you know, to talk to a, 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 a venture capitalist, right? That, if the employees there who don't necessarily get it, if they're kind of behind it or are on board with it, well, that is a little more telling. And maybe we'll learn a little bit more about that. But so far, they've said no. But anyway, I sent them a note saying, hey, whatever it is, I don't understand why you're doing it. It doesn't seem to help me as a creator. And I, you know, they've earned a lot of money from me, right? Both as a backer. I've backed more than almost 200 Kickstarters. And I've launched seven that have generated a fair amount of money for them, right? So I can tell you that as a, as a, as a, producer as a creator and as a customer i don't see any advantage to this whatsoever but i'll tell you what i see a disadvantage and that's my own fan base people that like my stuff are coming to me saying are you going to back this and i'm like i don't know right now i have really good news for me which is i just finished my kickstarter i'm done with them and i don't plan on launching another one for at least a year so this is going to play out before i'm ready to do anything anyway but I'm probably going to continue to back Kickstarters for products that I like. And I'll explain, I'll explain why. But regardless, it's clearly a terrible PR disaster, right? And so from a marketing standpoint, I don't see any advantage in doing it. I see lots of disadvantages just from a PR standpoint. So, hey, you probably really don't want to do that, right? I wrote my strongly letter, worded letter. They sent me a reply back. I got the reply. And it's more mealy mouth horse, horse hockey, uh, as Sherman Potter would say in MASH. That, you know, it is... The letter was full of the same BS that was on their website. It was like, oh, it's going to be great. And we're going to do this distributed stuff. Just be patient with us. And we're going to send out a white paper. Come on. Just, you know, very likely if, you know, if this goes up through their corporate chain, they're going to, yeah, this turned out to be a PR disaster. How about we roll back and say that we're not going to do it, right? And or we're going to, we're going to put the whole process on hold. Just put it on hold because clearly nobody really, there, there's no advantage to it that I can see. But I'm not ready to boycott, Right. And I'm not ready to boycott them. And I don't call for a boycott of them for a big reason, which is for every dollar that you hold back from a Kickstarter project, you're holding 95 cents of it from the creator. Kickstarter only makes five cents on the dollar for every Kickstarter you back. And I get it. That's all of their money comes from that. So if you're going to try to withhold funding from them, that's really the only way to do it. But what I've seen is Kickstarter is the best service I have seen to help independent creators create projects. It's the best one. There aren't alternatives that are reasonable at all. And looking around at other alternatives, I am pretty confident if I tried to move a Kickstarter to a different platform, I'd lose half of the backing that I'd get, right? And for other companies, and I've talked to other people that are running small companies that use Kickstarter, and they're like, we'd go under, right? Our business would go under if we couldn't use Kickstarter. Is it unfortunate that it's that tied around one company? Yeah, it is. And can, maybe this is a good reason to start 
thinking about how you're going to how you're going to move maybe right probably because we don't want to be that dependent on any one platform but right now we are right and and i'm not ready to hurt the creators who are building up businesses who are finally getting out from underneath the idea of that of being just a hobbyist like this is a really great way to be able to produce something very high quality very high cost and get it out there as an independent creator it's the only way i know of to do it none none of the other platform indiegogo patreon these other ones are great but they're not anywhere near what kickstarter is so i'm not ready to hold back stuff on it because of this because the reality is it's certainly a pr nightmare is it actually an ecological nightmare i have no idea what am i an engineer well, i'm I'm an engineer, but like, I don't know anything about blockchain and I have no idea about their carbon footprint costs and I don't know what their carbon footprint was before. So I don't, you know, it has nothing to say about, about blockchain and, and whether the one that they picked is super, super efficient, far more efficient there. But I know like, as far as I can see, there's no advantage to doing it, but the disadvantage is it's totally shattering their customer base. Lots and lots of people who are very creative people do not want this. It's a bad time. NFTs, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, all this stuff like man creators do a lot of creators do not dig that stuff at all this is a terrible time to do it so yeah that's my the whole thing really this is true like the whole topic makes me sad i am sad because i like kickstarter i back kickstarters i love what it's doing for the community and i'm also sad that they they have their heads up their asses with this and like just i'm sure that they're aware of the pr nightmare and i think they're trying to weather it out i don't think they're going to be able to and i i expect that what we're going to see is they are going to i would expect very likely they're going to say we've heard you we're going to roll back we're going to we're going to roll back all of our plans to put this out and we're going to investigate the whole thing further and then they're going to try it again later you know that's my expectation about what they would do but it's a real, I think it's a real pisser. I think it was a real, a, a real, a real bad thing to do. So here's a really cool thing that I want to show off. Uh, D&D Beyond, you know, I was bashing, I'm not bashing D&D Beyond, right? I love them. I just think we should know what they are, right? And what they are is a good online resource, a permeable, changeable online resource that uh, exists. But they put out a tool, they put out something recently that I think is really, really cool. It was something that I, I had hoped for and we finally got. And one interesting thing is they have moved the combat tracker. So they have the initiative or they have the encounter builder and the combat tracker are two tools of D&D Beyond that are tightly connected. In fact, so much so that until I was on their show talking about it, I didn't realize they were two separate tools, but they are. And and the combat tracker was in alpha. The encounter building tool was in beta, but both of them are now released to everybody. So you don't have to be a customer. You don't have to be a paying customer to get access to this stuff. You do have to be a paying customer to get access to the monsters that are underneath it, but you don't. And one of the cool things you could do, we're going to just do a real quick we're going to do a, a quick one here, I think. So we're going to go and we're going to make an encounter. All right, create a new one, and we will call it FU Tiamat. All right, Tiamat shows up. Right? And this is my, we'll assume that my Sunday characters do something I don't like, and I decide that it's time for Tiamat to show up. So you click on your manage characters, right? And this is my Sunday D&D group. I don't know, this is somebody else's. So we're going to hide that character. But I think everybody else, these are all my regular Sunday characters. So this comes right from the campaign, right? We built a campaign. They have their characters inside the campaign. All of their characters are here. So it knows their levels. It knows all of their stuff like that. It looks like a couple of people haven't bothered to level up yet. I'm not gonna worry about that because it's Tiamat. And then we're gonna have, we're gonna do that new aspect of Tiamat. This is the one from Fizzbands, right? And we're gonna add a Tiamat stat block to this, right? So that's cool. And we hit save. So we now have created a, it takes, it takes a little longer here, right? We've now created an encounter that has Tiamat in here, right? 
and has all of the characters in it. And they have this little run encounter button. So we're going to click the run encounter button. And it's got a list of the characters, right? And it's got Tiamat. And we could click the auto roll initiative and it gives uh, Tiamat an initiative of eight, which is fine because she's got legendary actions. But here's the cool thing. We're going to jump to a new window here. We're going to pretend that we're one of the characters. So we're going to go to collections. We're going to go to campaigns. We're going to go to my Wednesday or Sunday D&D campaign. Right, and we're gonna pick on who we pick on. We'll pick on uh, Gore, right? So we click on Gore. We get our Gore. Yeah, here's Gore's thing, and we in in our Discord or whatever say roll for initiative, right? And Gore says, okay, I'm gonna roll for initiative. He clicks the initiative. He rolls a die. He gets a nine, which is pretty par for the course. But check this out. It already threw initiative nine into the initiative builder, right? I didn't do anything. So before. I had to hand type in all of the initiative scores that they that they that they did that. Now it's auto doing it. Let's we'll go back to one of the other characters so you can see it again, right? We'll go to candle. You go to candle. So pretend that this is the player doing it, right? I'm pretending to be a player. You click on that. Of course, candle gets a 21 on his initiative, right? Hey, look, it filled it out, right? So you have that. Here's the other cool thing. It, let's say for some reason you didn't want the players to roll. You can click auto roll initiative and it fills everybody out. In fact, it filled in everyone else, right? So you can now auto roll initiative for both characters and monsters and then hit start and you're right, you're right, ready to go. It also has their current and maximum hit points already listed inside of the list. And if they go down, so let's say what, what happens. So, so I think Tiamat here is going to breathe, right? Where's Tiamat's breath weapon? Funny that it doesn't have the die rolling for this. Why doesn't it have the die rolling for that? That's really weird. So we'll say that does a bite a bite attack on candle, right? 32 points of damage plus 25. So that's 37, 47, 57 points to candle. Candle takes 57 points of damage, right? 57, whoops. Ah, what did I do? Apply, right? So now we see, oh, what just happened? I don't know why it keeps doing that. I'm clicking on something wrong. There we go. I think it's when I click this top bar, it goes back to the homepage. So now it's 26 of 83, right? I go back to my encounter thing here and look, Candle's hit points have been updated directly. So now what we've got is a really cool system where players have a way to manage their full character on D&D Beyond. They can manage the specifics of their character in D&D Beyond. They can roll initiative in D&D Beyond. They can roll dice in D&D Beyond. All of the dice rolling and all of that stuff is happening inside of this game log that we've got in real time, but it's also updating the encounter builder chart. Right. So I can see, ooh, wow, candles hurting. Maybe I should hit him again. Right. Really cool. And that idea of that the initiative is auto rolled in is really cool. One thing I really wish they had is a way to then show that initiative to the players. But at least I can describe here's the current initiative order and 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 describe it. And maybe somebody can type it out. Really cool feature. Yeah, I really like it. Does it further tighten us into DD Beyond as, as a a little bit. Do we need it? No, we could do it 50 other ways, right? But it's, but it's pretty cool. So, so I really, I really, I really dig, I, I dig that. I think it's a cool feature that that has. And apparently that's now available to, to everybody. I, I don't know if you also noticed it, but in that same combat tracker, I closed it. But in the combat tracker, you can also, you can also see their passive scores. I think it's passive perception. It'd be nice if you could see some passive after, after other stuff, but you can definitely see passive perception. So that's pretty cool. So really neat. You know, I, I, D&D Beyond is continuing to add these new things. As soon as they had the combat log, as soon as there was a way for me to see the players' roles and they could see my roles in one log interface, that meant I started using that a lot more. And it's because being able to share the roles in a log was a really, really cool 
a really, really cool thing. If you are not familiar with it, the there's an excellent channel on YouTube called Dungeon Craft, done by a fella who has the nom de plume of Professor Dungeon Master. He is definitely an, an old school DM, definitely been playing for a long time, definitely has a drive towards old school play. And you can go, like, what does that mean? Go look it up. But he talks a lot about 5e. He talks a lot about a lot of stuff. And I really like this stuff. He did a couple of videos about building a what he called the ultimate terrain the ultimate terrain tile, which I really loved because it was a circle, not a square, and it had zones in it. He was doing sort of zone-based combat. You should definitely check out his videos about uh, the ultimate terrain tile. I never made one because it looked really hard to make, and I'm just not that crafty, but it looked really cool, and I like that. So I've been following his videos for a while, and he did a wonderful, very nice... He's mentioned Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master before. Where is it? So this is this is Professor Dungeon Master here. That's That's him. Dungeon Craft is the name of his channel. And it is a, so he did a, he's talked very fondly of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master before, and I've always appreciated that. I really, I really like his stuff. And he did a full, you know, 15 minute review of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. He went through, went through the book, talked about what he liked, really spent a lot of time on it. He and Bob Will, Bob World Builder, he mentions Bob World Builder, and I guess he had heard about it. I don't know if he heard about it from Bob World Builder or not, I'm not sure. But Bob World Builder is another really great YouTube creator who I like a lot. And he and I have been, have, have been chatting and stuff like that. He also did a review of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, which is very kind. And uh, anyway, it was a really nice review. I was very, I was very honored for him to do a review of it. He, he gave it, you know, very, very good marks. He didn't do the, you know, sort of backhanded compliment of like, it's great, except... At least not that I saw. So check it out. If you want to see the, his review, I will I will link to it. I will link to it in the show notes below. I'll paste that into Twitch. Although you shouldn't. If it's in Twitch, you shouldn't watch it because you, you want to hang out here, right? He also, so today, instead of a spotlight, uh, he has done a spotlight that I'm going to spotlight. And that is for a, a book called the Index Card RPG. So I will, I'm going to link to, because I'm only going to do a short, a short preview of this because he's, he did such a good one. I don't, I don't need to. Right, and I'll paste this into the chat, a chat here. So we're gonna do a spotlight of someone else's spotlight, right? He did like a 12 minute in-depth review of Index Card RPG, which is a really, really cool lightweight. It's, it follows this, this kind of idea of lightweight, classic style D&D books. It's a single book solution. It is, it's got a, I should have had it. I should have had it ready. Hey, look, I, I do, Master Edition Digital, bang. So uh, this is the PDF for Index Card RPG. It's done by Runehammer Games. I know about Runehammer because they did the 5e hardcore mode PDF that's available on DriveThru, which I, I reviewed on this show before as well. 5e hardcore mode is a way of sort of bringing old school principles to your fifth edition D&D game. And I really liked it. I, I like it did a lot of things that I really adored, like abstract combat and zone based combat and stuff like that. Really, really cool ideas. If you wanted like a more brutal version of, of D&D, that is certainly one way, one way to do it. And they had apparently been working on index card RPG well before they had done that. Index card RPG is their full RPG. This PDF is a 408 page PDF. And Again, Professor Dungeon Master goes into a lot of things that he likes about it. So I'm just going to mention a few things that caught my eye. A few things that caught my eye that I think are, are, are noteworthy that might not have been in there. So it is a lightweight D20-based system. Very, very D&D-like. It focuses a lot on this, on this kind of cool 
line, you know, heavy black and white line based art that I really like. And it's not just the aesthetics of the book. They actually use this as materials for the game in the sense that you can buy index cards. And I did. I haven't gotten them yet. I'll probably talk about them on the show again. But for I think it's about $18 gets you a box of 120 index cards that have art that have art for locations on it. And it's a great way to sort of, and, and, and Professor Dungeon Master talks about this in his video, great way to sort of like lay out a town, lay out a dungeon, have like sections of a room. And it's a zone-based combat kind of system where like, oh, I'm by the throne. I'm by that creepy throne or I'm hanging out by that pit. I'm at that pit peeking in, right? So really neat way to use the art, not just aesthetics for the book, but also as something that you can actually use during the game, which I think is really cool and very transportable into your 5e D&D games. You can use that zone-based combat system right in your 5e D&D games. The other interesting thing about the book, this, this big 408-page page book, is that it is not just a fantasy genre. It has multiple genres with the worlds inside of the book. So you can play, you know, Alfheim, which is more your, your, your traditional fantasy, Warp Shell, science fiction, Ghost Mountain, Vigilante City, Blood and Snow, all different, very different genres, all with like a good world, you know, and I mean, you can see that like there, there are 20 page sections of these worlds that are all inside this book. I've had people in my Discord channel, in this Life Flourish Discord channel, who are like, I can't understand why anybody is playing anything other than an index card RPG. Like they love it so much. They're like, this is all I need. And, and I can see that, right? I don't, I don't know that that is true for me, right? I think I, I still like 5e, but I love looking at this kind of stuff. Another cool thing, cool line art, nice abstract, uh, abstract movement, you know, zone-based cards. I can't, I thought this was the one that had like movement is roughly the, the distance of a banana. I thought this was index card RPG that had that where banana-based, you know, banana-based banana kind of system here. So, oh, yes, I've gotten some dropped frames. Tell me if we're still streaming or tell me if the, the, the frame rate is still, is still dropping. I'm going to have to drop down to 30 frames a second. Hopefully we're okay. Hopefully it'll still go. And I'll probably switch back to 30 because I think 60 frames, we don't need 60 frames a second. I think it's because I've been flipping around that book all the time. So really, really great RPG. And, and so a couple of other really cool things. They have a free quick start book. So it, and it's not small you, for, for, for nothing. And this will all be linked in the show notes. You can get a 34-page book that shows you the kind of stuff that it has in it. I will paste this in the notes below. But that's great. First of all, I love RPGs where they pack everything into one book, right? I think that's really, really cool. The other thing is I love it when they offer a free preview that gives you everything that you need to understand how this game is different from all the others. Those, I think, are really, really good marketing things to do. If you're, if you're making a product, consider doing that. They have a hardcover version, which is, which is really nice. I think I've got, so I've got an old version, I think, of the hardcover book. Again, digest size book, really cool. I think this is the second edition version, not the first edition version, but it's probably just as, it's probably just as good. The, unfortunately, the hardcover version from their website is out of print, right? They say stock is coming soon for the master edition physical, physical book, but probably worth getting. This is another one where like, if, if you have this book in your house, like you're good forever, right? Like this book will last as long as you're alive, if you take care of it. And you've got a version of D&D that nobody can do anything with, right? They're not going to tell you that you're playing wrong. So, and I'm, I'm not saying that people tell you are playing wrong. The Master Edition PDF, 18 bucks. So not dirt cheap or 1850, not dirt cheap, right? That's kind of expensive for PDF, but it's 400 pages. It's a great big honka book. I think it's, I think it's worth it. Uh, I think if you buy the physical book, I don't know if it comes with the PDF as well. If it does, it's probably worth waiting to, to, get, to get both together. 
And then there's this thing, the Essentials deck, which I, I just ordered a copy. It's going to take some time. 18 bucks, uh, 120 cards that have those locations on. And you can see, watch the video with Professor Dungeon Master where he shows how those, how those things work. But really cool. So neat system. I dig it. You know, I would definitely consider playing it. I, but I think the interesting thing to me about this is like I gravitate towards simplicity in D&D. I love games where they refine it down to its bare parts, right? Where it's like it's attribute checks, like really straightforward. But the reality is like I don't think that that ends up being a long term way to play because I know my players want that extra crunchiness. I know that they like subclasses. They like having lots of different options. They like having lots of things that come in. They like they like having lots of different feats, right? And lots of choices. And so while I love the simplicity of these old school games, I think the reality is they might be fun for a few sessions, but I don't know that you would run a long campaign. I don't know if that's true with this because I haven't played it. So, but I know that that's kind of an interesting, an interesting dichotomy that I have, right? Is like, I like the simplicity of these systems, but I also know that my players and I like the complexity that comes with D&D. &D. All right. Let's get into some patron questions. Every month I post a thread on the Sly Flourish patron asking patrons if they have any questions that they would like discussed either here or as videos or online. And I grab them and I stick them in a big Notion table and we go through uh, and answer them. So let's get right into it. Drew C says, I ran the Dragon of Icespire Peak for my wife. And one thing I struggled with was the dungeon that had uh, a bunch of empty rooms. At first, she thought she would try to search the rooms, but often there wasn't anything to be found or interact with. By the time she made a room, made it uh, to a room with something hidden, she had stopped searching rooms, figuring it was pointless. In your one-on-one -on -one playthrough of Dragon of Icespire Peak, you and Enrique didn't go to Axelmer Mountain to Goldmine. So I'm wondering how you would have handled them. Do you add and improvise things to empty rooms to make them interesting, or do you leave them as is? There are are two answers to this question about how I do it, right? I'm just offering my thoughts on that. Um, thing number one is I, I think it is perfectly acceptable to let players know that they have exhausted all of the searching opportunities in a room. The, 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 the problem is, does that mean that if you don't tell them that, that they know there's something in the room and that they just have to find it, right? But I think it's okay if you, if you reach a point, it's sort of like hitting the end of a dialogue tree with a NPC in a video game, right? You just want to know you've hit everything, right? And so go ahead and let the player know, just so you're not wasting time, right? Just let the player know you have exhausted all of your opportunities to search this room. Now, maybe they've done a search and they missed something and you're like, well, I'm not going to just let them keep trying until they see it, but no, they've missed it, right? Well, that's okay. And then you say, you have exhausted all of your opportunities to search this room. I think it's perfectly fine to do that so that players know, should I keep doing stuff here or should I just move on? I think that's a good sort of meta way of handling that to, to keep the game running smooth without having a bunch of people doing a lot of checks for stuff that's not there, right? Number two is yes, absolutely. If there are empty rooms, put things in those rooms. And there are two ways that you can do this. One, uh, you can add, there are, two, there are two tools that are in the Lazy Dungeon Master arsenal. These are both mentioned in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. One are fantastic locations and two are secrets and clues. And these two things work well together, even when we're running a published adventure. So when you run a published adventure, I think it's still very valuable to keep to do your secrets and clues. I think secrets and clues are useful. I use them all the time. Even though I'm run, running published adventures, I still use secrets and clues all the time. Very, very handy tool to help you improvise during the game, 
right? That's a big thing. You've got your list of things that they can discover during the game, abstracted from its location of discovery so that you can drop them in where you want. And that means if there's an empty room, that might be an opportunity for them to learn something, learn a secret or clue. But where will they learn it if the room is empty? And that's where you put something in the room. So the other one is this idea of monuments, right? Monuments, or, or you can think of it like fantastic locations, but I like to think of them like monuments. Monuments are things that are inside of a room that, that are interesting, right? And they can be anything. And there's a bunch of different ways to, to make monuments. One is you can use a random generator, right? I have random generators on Sly Flourish to generate mon monuments. I also, somewhere in here, in the Lazy DM's companion, both in the Lazy DM's companion and in the Lazy DM workbook, we have monument generators, right? And here you can have like sarcophagus or obelisk or skull or effigy or altar or pit. And then you can add things to it. Like it's a, it's a necrotic well or a shadowed obelisk or, you know, whatever, or this other description, right? Aspired aspired orb or a gloomy pit, right? And so you can use these tables. By the way, this this table is in the Lazy DMs Companion, but it is also on the sample chapter. Let's go there. We go to Sly Flourish, you go to the Lazy DMs Companion page, and on here is a download the 17 page sample. That's free for everybody. And in this sample, I wonder if my stream rate's gonna go bad because I'm going through. In this sample on page 13 is the core adventure generator. This is right out of the book and it has these tables. I really think that like these six tables or yeah, these six yeah lines, but really for monuments, you want this middle monument one plus the condition, description and origin tables can give you, what is that? 20 to the fourth, I think, right? Many, many thousands of different potential monuments. That's one way to do it. Generate, generate monuments randomly. And, and you probably don't want to do that during the game, but you can do it ahead of the game, right? And ahead of the game, just jot a few of them down. The other thing you can do is if you know some of the lore and some of the information about the location is when you're gonna do a dungeon, you might jot down 10 different monuments that could exist in that dungeon. They're still abstract from the rooms because that way you don't put them in an empty room that the characters never go to. But you could say like, these are some of the things they might find if they're exploring these halls. And it could be like a mosaic. It could be a weird carved pillar. It could be a sarcophagus or a tomb. It's whatever makes sense. But in this case, because you're tailoring it for the dungeon that you're running, uh, it's very specific. So that can work, you know, that can work pretty well. I would not, what would I not do? So those are the two things I would do is you know, and you know, tailor them if you, if you want. Otherwise you can kind of use just a random generator, shake your head up and, and do that. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Thank you, Drew, for that question. Sport Launch says, I tend not to have that many encounters per day and it seems to clash with the way long rests are designed. I could force more encounters, but I want to use organic storytelling most of the time. I'm working on a homebrew rule where you can pick and choose some benefits during long rest. You can normally pick two among options, regaining 50% health, regain half your hit dice, regain all your spell slots. If you don't choose the last one, you only regain half. Using a sort of spell point system okay hit points and hit dice an option can be chosen twice so you can get all of them you can spend hit dice during a long rest as well as short rests if environmental and psychological conditions are harsh and you fail a con save you can only choose one option thoughts so you know if you're looking for the sly flourish blessing of your house rules they're they're cool sure um one thing that I, that I, I, one, one kind of larger conversation that exists around this is, should we be worried about the number of rests that occur? And I think, no, it is not something we should really worry about. I, there, are, there are two kinds of concepts that I think are common among dungeon masters that I don't think really matter that much. And one is the idea of attrition, that, that we need to drain the resources of the characters, right? And my argument is, I don't, why? right? Like, does it matter really? It matters for boss fights, 
right? It can matter for boss fights. But generally speaking, who cares if they rest a lot, right? Who cares if they're going in full? There's this kind of like, yeah, but then the fighter is getting a lot less of the advantage of the wizard. The wizard's supposed to have these daily, but nobody, I mean, in my opinion, and among the players that I've played with, many, many different players, I haven't seen that matter too much. It doesn't really matter that much. There are circumstances, you know, this gets back to like my core rule number one, which what, what makes sense in the world, right? Start with what makes sense in the world. If it makes sense that they can take a rest, let them take a rest. If it doesn't make sense that they can take a rest, then they can't. There are things you can do in the world to prevent them from taking too many rests if you feel like it's important that they do, that the fun of this place is that they are having to manage their resources. And that's something like what they do in Yethrin in Rime of the Frostmaiden, which is that like you are getting twisted by the nature of Yethrin. If you stay here too long, you're going to turn into a Nothic right? You can do something like that. You could have, of course, monster, you know, wandering monsters are going to come by a lot. You, there's a lot of different things you can do, but what about stuff like Lehman's Tiny Hut? Like, how are you going to deal with Lehman's Tiny Hut, right? And I don't, I'm, I'm not a fan of Lehman's Tiny Hut because I think it is too easy to take a long rest in a hostile area, but you could do what I did in Tomb of Annihilation, right? In the Tomb of the Nine Gods, which is, well, they know that you're in that tiny hut and they drag all their trebuchets and all of their Greek fire and they wait sitting around your hut so that as soon as it breaks down, they're going to dump it all on you, right? In one case, I had them, they like, the, the whole tiny hut became opaque and then they heard all this weird sounds and like, what's outside? And they dropped it and a thousand crawling claws fell on them, right? And it was because like the guy, the thing is like, I'm going to have fun dumping the crawling claws on you. So there's things you can do, right? But generally, I don't worry too much about like, can they rest a lot? Sure, why not, right? If it makes sense, it makes sense. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I've heard some other house rules and, and the DMG has house rules that you can apply to kind of make long rest and short rest different, mostly in how long they take. Maybe a long rest takes a week instead of a day. I've heard somebody brought up a house rule where you can only take a long rest in a place that's really safe. You can't do it when you're just, you can't like camp out in the middle of a dungeon or even out in the woods, right? It's too dangerous to get back your stuff. I think your house rule is fine though. That's certainly one way to do it. But my, my general advice is we, we don't need to worry so much about how often the characters get to rest or what they get back. I, I just, if it bothers you, it bothers you. I would probably be worried about other things. Shannon F says, I've been looking at Dungeon Crawl Classics recently for a one shot. I like the way that monsters are listed one line with a brief description. Do you think 5e monsters could be done the same way? I had planned on doing some homework because I know there are some third-party publications that do this and I can't remember what they are and I have to dig through my thousand PDFs to try to figure out which ones did it. The answer is probably not and I've tried it. I think it's a cool idea. I would love to kind of boil down D&D to a more simple form where you could have just like three numbers that represent a monster. The problem is with 5e is that the attributes matter. The attributes of a monster matter, right? Their, their, six, their six ability scores matter and if you're bothering to put the ability scores in, well, now you've got all the ability scores plus armor class and attacks bonus and any special attack it's you know you can try and i think of course it works well for simple monsters but a couple things that became clear to me particularly when i i, I tried to show options for this on twitter and what i got was like the readability really kind of sucks they're very hard to process that way they're very hard to parse it, it they don't they it's too hard to read you also hit that same kind of problem that you hit with like spell cards which is the spell card is always, you know, many times spell cards are like missing the one paragraph that really mattered and you have to go look it up anyway. Or there's confusion or a lack of trust where it's like, oh yeah, that's what it says in the spell card. But do we know if that's true? Because I know there was a misprint once and we need to go back and look at the actual one. And now it's just taken more time than it did. I think the current process of list them, and this is what I do in my books, right? List the monster's name in bold so that you know to go look it up and then keep your monster book nearby and just look it up. I don't, I don't think that's a, such a big lift, Right. So can it work? Maybe. And I know at least, I've seen at least two groups try. 
and it's and it, it looks kind of not bad but i i feel and it, it hits that kind of classic idea right and i like it but i don't think it works that well and and i don't I, I think like you can try it for your home game and see. I know for publication, I'm probably not going to do it. I think for publication, my preferred style is try to use common monsters that exist in the monster manual or in the in the system resource document for D and D, and then then add you know add a couple of bullets to customize a monster if you need to that stack onto that current one. That's my favorite style. Frank H says, as a player, I try to make sure to review my notes from the last session, review character relationships within the party, and review my character sheets before each session. Is there anything more you would add uh, to the lazy player's guide? As a player, I try to make sure to review my notes. I've talked about like what it means to be a good player before. I think the things that you're bringing up here are really good. I think the idea of you could do the same thing that we do as DMs, which is also review the character sheet or the characters. Who are the other characters? And what's how does your character feel and relate to them, right? I knew I was playing in a game yesterday at my friend Chris's game, and I, I knew where we ended. And I was like, I want to have a fun scene with one of the other characters where I talk about the joy of looking in a pit you know, looking in a deep shaft that goes down in the depths of a dungeon and like anything could be down there. Mystery, treasure, horrors, wondrous things. Like we don't know what we're going to find down there. And it's that sense of wonder that really makes being an adventurer great. I wanted to have a scene like that. And I kind of planned it ahead of time because I was thinking about the other characters. I think, it, but I think you could do the same sort of review of the other characters. If you want to be a nice, a nice person, review the other characters and think about how your character can kind of bolster and boost them. Ask them interesting questions about their character during the game. Make other players feel good about their character, right? That's one thing you can do. Reviewing where you are in the story, clarifying anything that you need to clarify with your DM and, and, and you know, getting into the DM story, right? The DM has a story that they want to do. Try to see how you can fall into that story. So think less about your own character, think more about the other characters and think about the story. I think those would be some things that I would put on a lazy player's guide. I've, I've, I have a video, I will link to it. I have a video and I think an article on Sly Flourish that's kind of like tips for being a great player. Most of them are around that same kind of idea, right? Try to, try to support the rest of the group, try to support the story, stuff like that. Good question. Philip W., I'm a fan of fate and especially fate aspects. Me too. I know you've previously experimented, experimented with the use of aspects in some past work, fantastic locations. I still do it. What are your thoughts, if any, on using aspects with mechanical benefit in 5e? Yeah, so I've kind of abstracted the mechanical benefits and instead I try to think of like what are the ways to improvise the benefit. But we were just talking about monuments, right, earlier in this show. And monuments are an example of like an aspect, a fate-like aspect. An aspect in fate is sort of a tag that exists in a scene. And I like to use them as like th what are three interesting things that exist in a, in a room that the characters might want to interact with. And in fate, they have a mechanical effect. You can sort of you know, trigger the aspect of an object. So it could be like if you have a giant flaming brazier in the middle of your room. Well, that giant, giant flaming brazier, obviously people could tip it over. People could kind of use the fire in it. People could get thrown into it. There's things you could do with that giant flaming brazier. I like to improvise the mechanics. Like what are the things you could do? Well, I think it works better to try to think about what the thing does in the world and then consider what mechanics you would wrap around that. So you might have like a obsidian pillar of arcane channeling. And you might say something like, it is this ancient pillar of arcane energy that you can, from which you can draw energy, but it's dangerous to do so. It's unstable. So you have to make like a DC 15 arcana check. You can do it as a, you know, as a free action or as a bonus action. It's kind of your choice. And if you succeed on the check, it gives you advantage on your next spell attack or gives an, an opponent disadvantage on their check. Pretty, pretty powerful. But if you fail, you're going to take 
you know, half your level in D8s in psychic damage because you're going to get arcane energy blasting back forth. So it's like a fun sort of if Dan, you know, fun fun sort of option for a character to do. So I I I, I tend to lean towards improvising those as they come up rather than having them tied to. I used to I used to have like tighter ideas about like what were some of the things you could do. Now I sort of offer up here are the general mechanics you can apply and then you can figure it out. What's advantage, what's disadvantage, amount of damage done, amount of damage that can inflict, what are things like that? There are, there are the sort of ways that you can trigger interesting aspects in a in a chamber, right? There's the there, an ancient sarcophagus filled with a elder evil. Like can you channel that energy? Yeah, but it's going to be hard. DC 18. But what if you do, you can add 3d8 necrotic damage onto your next attack, right? Can, you want to kind of get comfortable with the rules enough to be able to improvise things like that. And and that's, you know, it's sort of an advanced class sort of feature, but I but I but I think it works pretty well. Let's do one more. Alex H says, "Do you have any advice for lazy prep for Adventures League?" Uh, I get asked to run games on my FLGS, but find AL prep tedious and using the modules to run the game cumbersome, but not being my game. I'm afraid I'll forget details. I, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's more cumbersome. I mean, if you're homebrewing, it's different, right? And the one thing about AL is people do have an expectation you're going to run it closer to the adventure. So it's, I think it's actually harder to run AL adventures because of that, right? But they're not huge and they're readable. So I can, I will offer a few pieces of advice. I will offer advice that I've heard from David Christ and he's gotten, David Christ runs Baldman Games. He runs the largest organized play programs in the world. He's run thousands and thousands and thousands of games and he gets surveys on all the DMs. And there were four factors that people surveyed and, and you could kind of do correlations to see what correlated with what. And what he found is that preparation mattered. That, that spending the time to prep an, an Adventures League adventure had benefits. The games were more fun when the, when the DM was prepared. That's definitely a case. F- being friendly to your players was the next one, right? Being friendly meant that a game was going to be more fun if the DM was both friendly, i.e. on the player's side, all the kind of stuff we talk about here. Be on the player's side, boost their characters. You know, don't be an antagonist DM. Don't try to stick it to them. Instead, try to make sure that their character is being awesome. So be f- be on the player's side. Prep prep the adventure. I think it, it matters, and it is it's harder. It's it's more work than it can typically take because you do want to run the adventure the way you're running it. It's really handy if you can play in it. If you have an opportunity to play in the adventure, that works really well. And then the other thing I would offer is do everything you can to stay on time. Right, really pay attention to time cut from the middle of the adventure so that you can run the conclusion. I think that that, I think that, that is really important. So I, I hope that that advice has. I have, I have some videos that I, will, that I will post in the show notes below. Thank you very much for coming to the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, you can help me out in four ways. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can subscribe. You can join me on my Patreon. You can pick up any of my books or you can subscribe to my videos on YouTube. Thank you very much for coming today. Have a great day.